Yeah, and Chris, so the Tower of Babel is a story from the Bible about a tower where it was about creating one language that the whole world could speak. That's the idea, because there was what was called the confusion of tongues, which is an old Mesopotamian myth from like 2,000 years before the Bible. And it's just this idea of, would the world be perfect if we all spoke the same language? These people spoke one tongue, then they constructed a tower to reach the level of the gods. And then God was like, you know what? I don't like that you're doing this. So he like waved his hand and then everyone spoke a different language. And that's why we all speak different languages because we were trying to make ourselves gods or something like that. It's a story about empire and how empires try and homogenize the world. Okay, let's get well, to the conversation though. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to introduce him, Chris, or you want me to? Yeah. Welcome back to the FS Jam podcast. On this episode, we have Peter Pistorius, core maintainer of Redwood JS and entrepreneur who is also building a developer application. Let's get to it. How are you doing, Peter? Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me here. I'm doing pretty well. It's simmering hot here in South Africa. I am currently in a incredibly warm room without any windows open because it's very loud outside. Yeah, thanks for being here, Peter. We're really happy to have you. I've been thinking about getting you on before we even started this podcast. When I gave my first Redwood talk, I referred to you as the Rosetta Stone of Redwood because you have written far more of the code than anyone else. And Chris has made jokes about this, that when there's a serious problem in Redwood, he knows I need to poke Peter. And anytime we get into a conversation on the podcast where no one knows what's going on, the conversation always ends with, well, I guess I'll have to ask Peter about this. So we're really happy to have you here. Thanks. I actually like to make a joke that I love to touch every single file in Redwood.js, <laughs> but I feel as if that over time that has not been true anymore. So there are parts of Redwood that I just don't know anymore. I guess that's going to continue being true as time passes. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's something I was curious about, actually, if there are any parts of the code base that even you don't feel like you know anymore, because that means no one person has the whole code base in their head anymore, is what that means. Totally, yeah. I think it's gotten to that point. There's an Ethereum uh, authentication provider that's just been added, and I actually have very little interest in, in blockchain technology, so I just kind of glazed over it. And there's many more. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but it exists. And I, I think that's actually a really good sign of open source software when... There's not just one person that's responsible for the majority of the code. It's more like a group of people getting together and building something that they enjoy. Yeah, and that's actually been, I think, the most enjoyable part about Redwood is, is the community uh, more so than writing the code. Don't get me wrong, the code writing is super fun, and I never ever thought I would build a framework, but um, getting to know everyone here is just, like here and in the Redwood community is, is, is amazing. This is one of the questions that I've brought up in the past in the podcast is where does a project live and die? Does it die with the person who no longer wants to maintain it? Do we get forks like Node? Or does the same person always stick with a project? Like DHH, is it DHH? Yeah, two yeah. H's, Hannah Meyer. DHH with Ruby or is it more like an organization that manages it, like Facebook, or just a group of random people pulling together to keep something always moving forward? As I've seen as Redwood's gone on, it's very much 
the community's getting bigger and the change log is starting to get a lot of new names on it. It's not just, here's everything Peter's done in this update. It's now, here's everything 20 people has done to push it forward. Totally. Yeah. And I think on sort of the founding team, we have David Price, who's really pushed the community to where it is right now. And without his efforts, we wouldn't have half the people that are contributing. Anthony as well, like Christopher, you as well, like FF Jam. And I feel like a whole community has sprouted up around Redwood and not everyone is like in these isolated groups, but we kind of know everyone. And when Anthony interview someone i'll be like oh yeah i i know exactly who he's talking about about love to hear that podcast and things like that so it's i'm not answering your question am i <laughs> no you are and that's, and that's awesome and this is like this is exactly why i made the the podcast and, and why chris and i have made the podcast because we really wanted to have a way for all of us to get more connected and to like hear what we're all working on and know what ideas we're all thinking about so we can all like learn from each other and, and grow together. Really happy to hear you say that. So that, that's really cool. Before we get too deep into kind of all these topics though, I really would love to know like, how did you learn to program and how long have you been programming for? Cause I have to imagine it's a long time by now. For those who are wondering, I'm 38 years old. I'm getting getting there in my, in my days. So how I learned to program was, um, Back in the early days, I had like a misguided use. I thought I could impress my friends by writing code and, and showing that to them. And I thought that that was something that would give them joy, but they were more gamers and they weren't really interested in, in like websites. And back in the day, I, was, I actually started out using FrontPage and eventually I moved to Dreamweaver and then I read a PHP tutorial and the whole idea was to try and build websites that I could show off to my friends and just to impress them. So when I was 17, I had done like a PHP tutorial, I think the week before, and I was playing games at a computer college and I'd actually got a Tribes 2 CD in the mail, which was amazing because no one ever sends anything to South Africa. And if they do, it probably wouldn't arrive through the post. But I got this Tribe 2 demo CD and we were trying to play it at this LAN party at this computer college and it had a bug and I actually looked at the code and it looked somewhat similar to PHP and it had like a line error. It had a scripting language and I modified this line error. I was like reading the code and I modified it and the game booted up and it launched. And the guy who ran the computer college was really young. I think he was 24 or something. And he was like, whoa, man, can you code? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can code. And I, I completely lied. He was like, cool, we might have some work for you. And I, I was 17 at the time. So I was still finishing school, but I said, hey, can I do it? And my mom said, sure, that's fine. You can. I just started coding and going to school. So at night I'd stay up really late trying to figure out what the problems were. The next day I'd go to school and sleep, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got into programming. I, li I, I like to say that I kind of fell into programming. I didn't really pick to be a programmer. I was just totally misguided in what I thought was cool. I realize now in retrospect that I've never been cool to my friends, but it didn't matter. So I know a lot of people who dispute that. I was in what we call ICT in the UK, informational communicative technology lessons. I would go onto the school website, pull up HTML editor, change all the staff names to bogus and spread it around the class, trying to be the jokester. <laughs> but, you know, I thought that was funny. But then soon as someone else would reload the page or go on the website, they'll be like, 
you didn't really change it's it. It's not there, <laughs> you know, it's not there. You're not so a, it's not really a big deal. You're not a real hacker and you're like, oh, I am. <laughs> I am. I've been learning WordPress. Yeah. <laughs> so we've already talked about the, the history of Redwood with both David and Tom. So we've gone over this a little bit, but I'd love to get it from kind of your perspective. When do you feel like you and Tom first kind of started kicking these ideas around and had it turn into like something real? I was working for a company called Chatterbug uh, that Tom co-founded and I, I was built the mobile app in React Native. We decided to start using React on the front end and with GraphQL and we kicked around some ideas and we really liked the patterns that we had come up with. But coming up with those patterns took a ton of time and it was a ton of effort. Like Webpack uh, in early Rails uh, was not a pleasure. After we had done that, I don't know how we got to the point where we were saying, hey, maybe we can turn this thing into a framework. It was really Tom who, who initiated that. And I was just like, yeah, I'd love to do that. That sounds like fun. And we created this thing called Der, Der Spielplatz, which means the playground in German. We started putting together like the basic pieces of what a framework would look like. And we had some key choices. Like we wanted GraphQL, we wanted this client uh, server separation. We wanted storybook, things like that. Like the things that we felt made us super productive in, in React. We wanted to have that in a complete framework. I guess that was maybe even two years ago. And then we kind of let it die. It just fizzled into nothing. I don't remember why, but then after a while we picked it up again and we renamed it to Hammer Framework. Oh no, it was called Chainsaw. Don't forget about Chainsaw. <laughs> I forgot about Chainsaw. And I remember at the time I was like, hey man, I kind of like trees. Chainsaw is super destructive. <laughs> and he was like, okay. And he was reading a, a book about Thor's hammer, how it's constructed. And he was like, this is the perfect metaphor. He decided to use that. He wrote up this like big readme in Tom's amazing readme driven development style. Yeah, and then we realized that there's a framework called, or there's a JavaScript package with like a million installs called hammer.js. And then we realized that's not gonna work either. So that was really the beginning of, of all of this uh, quite a while ago, I think almost two years ago. But it really in the last year, there's been a significant effort in making it something something completely usable and I think what everyone sees now is the result of tons of discussions around what things should be called and how they should work and like I, th I don't think everyone sees that is whenever we come up with a feature there's usually like three or four weeks of us talking about what we should name this thing how it should work how the developer experience should work and it's a super collaborative effort from all the developers sides yeah, this came up in a conversation about scenarios, which is the kind of this new like Redwood testing thing. Someone was like, why did you name this scenario instead of fixtures? And because the scenario is like a collection of fixtures, it's, it's something like that. And so I was like, anytime we come up with a new name or something, we usually have a good reason or at least a reason. Yeah. And then it's long forgotten. And we're like, why did we, why did we call them scenarios? Or why did we call them cells? Hence this podcast, oral history. Yeah. So one of the biggest parts of Redwood is... Prisma 2. We've spoke about Prisma 2 so much, so we don't need to talk about that. Another part, all of the abstractions that allow the amazing developer experience to happen. What I understand about the uh, cells is probably a lot less than what Peter understands. The cells, if you didn't know, are compiled through Babel with a lot of magic being removed by the end user. How complicated was it to build the prototype for the cell? 
I think it would surprise you to know that it wasn't complicated at all. A cell is a higher order component. It's like this old school thing. It, it was an old school higher order component. And basically that means it's a component that wraps another component. You know what? I need to double check that. So if that's not true. <laughs> what is it now? It's still a higher order component. So what would happen originally was you would create this cell file. You'd export success, loading, the query, all those things. And then you would actually in the file where you wanted to load the cell file, you'd say import star as file uh, as cell from cell. And then you would have an, an object that contains loading, success, query. You'd pass that object into this higher order component and the higher order component would have props. So the props would be query, loading, success. So that step where you're importing star as cell from cell, you're now just passing, it, we take that away. We, we, the moment we see a file name called cell that has a success and a query export on them, we make Babel do that for you. So we make Babel wrap it in this higher order component for you. That is the magic that is happening. If you've never tried Redwood before, the easiest way to understand what cells are doing is when you look at frameworks like Apollo Query and Apollo Hooks. I think it's Hooks now. Apollo Hooks got merged into Apollo Client or something like that. Your normal React component would have a hook at the top that would have a loading state, an error state, a data state, and a few other variables that then you would call later on in your component. So you would end up with this one functional component being really big and complex because it would have an error state in there. So it would need to show some JSX for error, JSX for loading, JSX for before it's loaded, and then the results. And that was one massive file component yeah, that yeah. you can still use today. And not only with... that, but you had all that branching logic in there. So you were like, if loading, exactly. show loading. If error, do error. And uh, I, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but I often joke that I have a development methodology called dummy-driven development. And one of the things that I try to fight against are branches in my code. And I know people are like, how do you do that? Like, that's crazy. But like cells are something that takes that away. You don't have to branch anymore. So the moment you remove a branch, you move path that you need to test and a path that you need to change in your mind or parse in your mind you don't have to think about it anymore yeah anytime i explain cells to people they get it immediately anyone who has worked with any of this stuff they've had to do all this conditional logic and deal with all these different ways figure out what to do with your error what to do with your success so some of those things that when i explain to people they instantly are like oh yeah that sounds like a great convention that i would love to have but then when i showed it to jason with learn with jason and we were coding it out he was like "Ooh, i don't know what to do with this like i don't know how to debug this like there's too much magic here he got like all freaked out by it so i think it's interesting that it's consistent conceptually something that we definitely all want, but developers still, they're wary of having that done for them. Yeah, I think if you consider it on the, on the other end, if you're using like a hook, for instance, how do you debug that? Like if there were something internal to the hook that you weren't sure of, how would you even like begin to do that? A cell is something that you could consider on the same kind of level. It's something that you can trust is going to work. And if you need to debug it, then then there's something really wrong with the way that we've written it. 
not necessarily how you're using it. Test your code, don't test the framework. <laughs> yeah. And what happens if it goes wrong? Well, it should spit something out in the error part. <laughs> if something is wrong, if it's not, it should go somewhere else. Yeah, totally. And I think there's or there are valid arguments against against magic. But I tried earlier to explain the imp implementation of it, and maybe I wasn't very clear. But it is really just React under the hood. The only magic is that we automatically wrap this import of a cell into a into a, another component. We pass the props to another component. How I imagine it sometimes in my head is when you want cleaner imports of files, you tend to have two files. Your foobar component and then an index.ts file that imports the foobar file as the default export totally and you have to think that's a wrapper to make it cleaner well if you think of it just like redwood that's also a wrapper making it easier so you have to worry about less of the abstractions it's interesting that i bring up files and file routing because that's something else Redwood really does help with as well as importing files. Yeah, so in our router, uh, we automatically import all files in a folder called pages uh, that end in page. And the idea behind that is that if you're trying to map a string for your route against a component that should display that route, that we can just remove that boilerplate for you and automatically handle that in a nice way. So we also asynchronously import those, so you don't have to wrap those in, in import and like a suspense block and all that other stuff. We, we're trying and lazy to... loaded by default. Yeah, totally. So we're trying to make your development experience more optimized and so that you have to read less code. And I know, I, I mean, we have to deal with the, the consequences of those choices all the time when we're building the framework. So like when we're trying to integrate TypeScript, we have to generate types in order to make those pages available in that routes file. There are definite arguments against it, and when you, whenever you shy away from, from the norm, there's a little bit of a, a tide that you're going to have to swim against, but hopefully Redwood is doing all the heavy lifting there, or at least to go along with the metaphor, there's like a boat that you can hold on to. In all my time of working with Redwood, it's always been, to you it's not fully ready yet, but to me, it's already saving me time. So <laughs> no matter what, it saved me way more time doing this for me than me doing it myself later. I can't remember the number quite off the top of my head right now, but I was on like the 0.11, I think it was, of Redwood. Hey, that's when I started, 0 0.11. It was the one where Magic Links got involved, that I go, something like that. Yep, I think Ramsey um, was the first person to contribute a, a custom-made authentication provider, which was amazing because when we built out that use auth hook, we weren't even sure whether it was possible because a lot of people were like, that's crazy. You can't integrate thousands of different providers using a single interface. You're telling me I can't integrate a JWT token? <laughs> I was like, let me just try. Well, this is the thing. Magic doesn't even use JWT tokens. How do you pass around the auth then? It's like some different kind of token. <laughs> Okay, know. so it's a token. Okay, so it's, it's a, a token. token. <laughs> it's not a JWT okay. token, to my understanding. Sure. Or it sure. could okay. be. I don't know. But it decrypts it itself. But the big point here was that Redwood started as opinionated in every way. And as it's gone on, its opinions have changed 
on things like deployment. When Redwood first came out, it was Netlify only. Now it's Vercel, PMG. But it was never intended to be Netlify only. That was just the first one, right? Yeah, that's totally totally <laughs> correct. Although Christopher is also correct, our opinions ha- have changed and they're they will continue to change. None of us want to die on a hill anywhere. We're, we're just going to... Strong opinions, loosely held. Yeah, we're just going to keep going where we think, where it makes sense, where people are going to enjoy building software. Yeah, this is a good segue into what I want to get into in terms of opinionatedness and opinions. There has been a lot of discussion recently around swapping out different clients for Redwood, so possibly taking out Apollo client for a different client. And this is something that I really, really wanted to talk to you about because you were tweeting about this months ago. You were talking about looking at different clients instead of Apollo. And I remember tweeting back at you like, could you like take some notes as you're like doing this evaluation? Because I have no idea what the difference between GraphQL clients are, and I would love to hear how you're evaluating these, what types of trade-offs you're looking at, what one thing is good at versus another, like so many questions here. So why did you pick Apollo client and why are you looking at other clients? Originally we had picked, uh, we picked Apollo client, Apollo version two, because I think at the time that was sort of the gold standard of what people were expecting a GraphQL client library to do. It was easy to use. Most people understood it. It just ticked all the boxes. There was only one box that just wasn't great. And that was the fact that it has a very large bundle size. In the meantime, we stuck with Apollo 2. Eventually Apollo 3 came out and they bumped the version number, which meant that they introduced some breaking changes. So us being a framework and having several people actually using Apollo 2 in production, we wanted to upgrade to Apollo 3 but we had this issue, how do we get you to upgrade and then also introduce these breaking changes and then you have to change a whole bunch of your code. So I realized that we could decouple the actual client, the GraphQL client from the interface that the user is using. So we did that for exactly the reason that I just uh, spoke about, which is that you could, in theory, still be on Apollo 2, but use a much later version of Redwood except that you decided to stick with Apollo 2 because that was the best decision for you. You didn't need Apollo 3. Or if you didn't need Apollo 3, you just decided to use something much, much simpler that doesn't have all the shiny bells and whistles. So the idea with decoupling uh, the interface that the developer uses from the client library that's bundled with Redwood is so that you have maximum flexibility and that you don't have to abstract uh, those imports for yourself. So I think one of the things that a lot of developers uh, or they should be doing whenever they use a third-party library is you don't necessarily always import directly from the library if possible. You create a separate abstraction of this library, you import those imports and use that in your code base with a standard interface that you can adhere to. Very Unix kind of mindset, right? Like single responsibility principle kind of thing. Yeah, I think because there's always the risk that the library is unmaintained or you want to upgrade it at some later point. It happens all the time. And if you have control of your own standard interface, you can kind of like switch them out, see what works for you. You can mock them, all kinds of things. There's like huge benefits there. So we wanted to do that for you, give you a single interface with the ability to switch it out whenever you want it. And then you don't have to modify much or all of your code in order to make that happen. Because if you're using a GraphQL client library, fetch data that's pretty much it's almost going to touch every single part of your app and having to switch that out at some point is really not going to be nice 
if you have a very large app. So that's why we did that. And in terms of evaluating other clients, we're really looking at two things. We haven't actually made a decision. We're still sticking with Apollo. Uh, we're looking at the bundle size. That's super important. And we want to simplify the way that people update the cache when you've performed a mutation. I'm somewhat naive to the complexities there, and I need to educate myself. Yeah, we've talked to both Dom and Swix about this exact topic, because um, Swix is really into data store, which kind of is how he's he's managing the, the cache instead of Apollo's cache. So yeah, I agree. This is something I want to learn more about. And it's like, I keep hearing people talk about as like this huge pain point that is really confusing. And I'm just like, I've never had gotten to the point of having caching issues. So I don't know exactly what's going on here. But yeah, this is something that I hear talked about just constantly. Yeah, and I think most of the time, you're just going to use the library and it's going to work for you. And you're not going to fight updating the cache. You're just going to be like, that's how it works. I'm done. And you accept it. But there are times when you just need a higher level of control. And it would be great if that control was much simpler. Because otherwise it's like, let me write some GraphQL to update my cache. It just feels really strange. It's not something that I enjoy doing. Fresh off the press, 11 hours ago, a developer by the name of Markilo Alvis has integrated a React query plus GraphQL request provider for Redwood, i.e. abstracting React query to be used instead of Apollo. This is fresh. None of us has looked at it yet. And something that I wanted to give a go myself. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we made that possible and then it happened. <laughs> so I remember when you were first talking about this, when you were evaluating different clients, I can't remember exactly if there were like specific ones you were looking at, but I remember you also tweeting about how you were like very jealous of React Query because React Query is just so nice. And you're like looking at React Query like, mm, I want some of this React Query goodness for Redwood. So it's, it's really interesting to see kind of like the long-term progression of these things. And I agree, like I hear so many people talk about React Query and how amazing it is. And I've watched a lot of Tanner's talks. I think he seems like a really fantastic developer and like he's got a, a good head on his shoulders. So I'm, I'm really happy to see this and I'm, I'm excited to see what types of stuff people start building out with that. Totally. I'm excited to give it a go. I'm going to plug that in to my Redwood app in as soon as this podcast is over. I'm plugging that in and seeing if it makes it any faster. And if it does, I will die on that hill. I was <laughs> like, I don't need Apollo. This is good right now. Yeah, I think web development and development actually is, is incredibly fashionable. Like we jump from one ship to another uh, quite easily. And I, that's actually what I... I think a lot of people say that they have never seen a bunch of people, web developers, who run in one place and go nowhere, just switching from technology to technology. But I think overall, like web development has become way better. It's so much easier to do things now, complicated things, than what we were doing back in the day. And certainly there are things that we are doing that are really not great. But I really love that we're so fashionable and we're jumping from like Apollo GraphQL to React Query to like big bundle sizes to single page apps to, you know, you can't stop us. We're just doing whatever's um, great. The big reason why is this is nothing bad in the industry, but we all go on Twitter 
and there'll be a tweet that has a thousand likes that says, I replaced my Webpack bundle with ES bundle and it took it down by two minutes. And you think, hmm, I could go do that quickly. And then you do it and you go, you were right, it's down. But you've made a change in five minutes that has reduced your bundle size, but you've totally jumped ship on, you know, the bundler of, of Webpack. And that's kind of happening now with React Query and Apollo. If it's literally takes five minutes to jump overboard to get a better, more performance solution, why wouldn't you? Why would you stay? I thought when you said you've gone to South Africa for four months, you were becoming one of the old people that when it gets cold in Europe, you go, I'm just going to go live in a hot country for four months. Let Europe get really cold and I'll just come back in the summer. You, you know, one of the things that I think about quite a lot is that if you are lucky, you're going to live to be like 80 years old. If you're lucky, you're going to have 80 summers in your entire life. That's not a lot of summers. So I try to maximize the amount of summers that I'm going to get in my lifetime. I am going to be one of those old people who's going to move like a sparrow. So we've talked a little bit about switching out the client and how to make that kind of more modular. I think this is one of the things I really enjoy about Redwood is that it's getting you a really tightly integrated, almost monolithic development experience, like made up of kind of decoupled pieces. But something else that I know Chris and I are curious about is if there are ways to, as JavaScript continues to develop, possibly upgrade the tooling aspect. So would there be ever a way that Redwood could be architected in a way that maybe you could switch out Webpack or even Babel? Are these things so tightly integrated that you would have to completely rewrite Redwood to bring in something like Rome or Snowpack? Or do you think that those are things that could one day be incorporated into Redwood? This is actually something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because there's this new class of build tools all powered by ES Build and everyone really loves them. And of course, like who wouldn't want faster builds? I've been playing around with some proof of concepts for switching out the Babel compiler for the parts that don't have magic to ES Build or completely switching out Webpack and just throwing in Snowpack. The way that we've architected Redwood is that you have these two discrete sides the API side, the web side, and we want to introduce more, such as mobile with React Native, but there's nothing stopping us from introducing an adjacent web-snowpack side or just taking Webpack out of there and then plugging Snowpack in there. There's some complexities around the integrations that we've performed for like Storybook, because Storybook uses Webpack. There's a boundary there, but why wouldn't someone build a snowpack version of storybook i think that would be really great for the way that we intend to use storybook like for me storybook is a development environment where i can build components in isolation and then i can build that and show it to my team i don't use a lot of the plugins and i don't use the testing stuff that they have integrated in there so anything is possible one of my favorite features of snowpack is you can import urls like mind blown it's, it's really cool yeah, what you said about Storybook and Webpack, I think that's really interesting. I think that's worth taking a second on because this is what worries me about trying to switch out something like Webpack or something like Babel is that Webpack and Babel, they are such 
huge dependencies, not on just Redwood, they're huge dependencies on all the pieces that make up Redwood. All these things are so tightly coupled that I just, I wonder like where we start to hit these types of boundaries by switching some of these tools out because it's like you say, by taking out Webpack, like we can get that to work with Redwood, but what if it breaks Storybook? Like then what do you do? I'll give like a, a breakdown of how I look at these things. So the foundation of Redwood is Babel. It transpiles all our code. And what we try to do is whenever we introduce a piece of magic, we try to introduce it and we try to anchor it on a file name. So in other words, like a file called routes.js or routes.ts, auto import things there. So in Redwood, we could keep Babel as the magic layer for things like cells, for things like routes, and for everything else where you're just writing standard JavaScript, we could switch in ESBuild. That is my theory of how that would work. So we could say, all right, if it matches this file, and we could do it via Webpack too, because then you're getting the performance benefits. So if it matches this file, stick with Babel. If it uh, doesn't match this file, go with ESBuild. And that's how we can try a whole bunch of different things. I think that will work. Maybe it's just a matter of time with things like Storybook. In their current repository, they are discussing multi-core support for what that means is Webpack 4 and Webpack 5. I think they upgraded to Webpack 5 and that cut off all the Webpack 4 users. So they're looking at being able to use both of them as Storybook uses Webpack 4 or Webpack 5. And if they got that core functionality working, to what I understand, then they could look at adding Snowpack as well. Yeah, I think Storybook has a very interesting, they have an interesting architecture in that they have two parts. They have like this main part, which is the UI on the outside, and they have the other part, which is your UI that you want to render. So they have these two instances. I'm probably naming them incorrectly. So the one, they could totally manage themselves. And the other one, they could say, all right, that's your Webpack config. And that's actually what you do is you say, use my Webpack config to build my own components and display them in your UI that you built with your Webpack config. Yeah, that's good. Totally see how they could do that. One of the questions while we're talking about config is we're really seeing these third generation of tools. Third age of JavaScript, as Swix calls it. We're seeing loads of things pop up like Roam, Snowpack. One of the ones I wanted to highlight that I don't know if you know much about, but it's still mysterious, is it Turbo, Turbo Repo. What do you think of that? Are you an insider or still an outsider? I am very much an outsider. I would love to see what it's about. I'm very excited to see all these fancy new build tools coming out. Okay, so this is Jared Palmer. So Jared Palmer, for anyone who doesn't know, was the creator of Razzle and Formic, and he's done a lot of work in the React ecosystem. My favorite package he's done is TSDX, a tool for building other things. So. Say if you want to release a React component to be installed by someone else and you want to write it in TypeScript, that basically gives you a template that you can build your component in and then it will be exported easy for uploading to the internet. Okay, cool. Is it like a package template? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, T TSDX was zero config CLI for TypeScript package development. You want TypeScript plus your repo code to be packaged up and stuck on NPM. TSDX is probably the best place to go for TypeScript. Nice. It's like create React app for packages. 
the packaging yeah. and publishing. Yeah, can we talk about TypeScript? I've heard that you got very into TypeScript this year, this last year, Peter. Is that true? And why'd you jump ship? I, I actually jumped ship because, no, I haven't jumped ship. Let me put it this way. I'm a firm believer in always bet on JavaScript. And I, I think as soon as JavaScript adds native types, which they might may or may not do, I think many people will jump the TypeScript ship. But maybe we're too far that that just can't happen. I don't know. Hot take. I say bet on the specs. I always say bet on ECMAScript. ECMAScript is what you should bet on. Yeah, so, so the way that I think about TypeScript, and I think I just co-opted this opinion from a, whole, from a whole bunch of other people, is that I write JavaScript and I annotate it with types, which happens to be TypeScript. And that often puts me in a scenario where I will solve the issue in JavaScript and it works. And then I need to add some kind of level of generics or I need to add TypeScript fanciness to it and I just can't make it happen. I'm actually not the best TypeScript developer. I'm actually pretty bad at it, to be honest. It's not my favorite thing. I love the DX that it gives you, no, no doubt there, but I don't enjoy writing TypeScript. It's very much this like ocean, I think TypeScript is. It's like you can go so and so far deep, but then you realize you're still in the shallow waters of the, the ocean. It can go so deep and you can spend so much time in working on, on it. And then you look over and your mate has just put any on everything and his code is already in production and your code that's typed perfect is still waiting to get past the jest tests. It's almost like the types don't actually matter or something. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, there's like these two... You have to find a middle ground. There's these two concepts, right? Like it's like, I think they have the one they call design time, where you want to have your Visual Studio code helping you out when you're trying to do refactoring or like, so that you don't have to reference the documentation all the time. And then there's like compile time, where you want to have the correctness of your types throughout your entire project so that you're confident that you have typed everything correctly and then things are working. I struggle with compile time correctness. I really enjoy design time correctness or design time checking. That's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, we are getting close to the end of our time here. So I'd just love to know we're at the beginning of 2021 here. What are you excited for Redwood in 2021? I'm really excited to hit version 1.0. I'm excited to actually get TypeScript support into Redwood. I can't wait for more TypeScript. My only question with Redwood fully supporting TypeScript is, will I be able to convert my route.js file to route.tests? So that PR was actually opened yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yesterday was Sunday. There's a PR that fixes that for you now. So you can do that, I think, in the next version. TypeScript's such a big thing that I feel we'll spend years working on it for someone else to just be like, hey, look over there. They're using no no types and it's great. <laughs> and, you, and everyone will be like, why are we using types again? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That, like, There is so much work involved in creating an open source framework that supports TypeScript in the way that we want it to be supported across these sides that we've built and things like that, that it's actually a huge amount of work. And some of the early decisions that we made in Redwood are making it super difficult. So we're trying to work around those. So if anyone is a TypeScript expert and has created TypeScript packages that they share with other people on the internet, 
I'd really love your insights and some of your help. Yeah, it's a great place for contributions for sure. The final question is, Peter, have you ever seen a redwood tree in real life? I have actually. I was in California and I think I went to the place where you go and see them. I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> Basically like the Santa Cruz Mountains kind of area is usually where you would go. Like Semper Virens or Big Basin, that kind of area. They're beautiful. I think there's actually a place somewhere in England where they have one as well. It's not very big. Somewhere in China too. Yeah, there are a couple places else in the world that there are as well. They're just like some random person was like, we, pl we shall plant one here. And that's where they are. If there is a redwood tree in the UK, I will make it my mission when lockdown is over to get a picture with it. Wales. It's not even in England. It's in it's Wales. In, it's in Britain. It weighs Britain. No, Brit Britain. Britain is the squiggly part. Wales is the lefty part and Scotland's the top part. Is it in Britannia? No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I don't even know what that <laughs> means annoying. anymore. <laughs> so it's in the UK. Well, thank you so much for being here, Peter. I can say quite definitively that Redwood would not be what it is without you. Thank you so much for your contributions, for helping build this awesome thing that so many people love and have enjoyed using. And thanks for being on the podcast. I look forward to getting you back and asking you the other 9,990 questions I had. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I, it was super fun and I hope my TypeScript opinions are taken with a grain of salt because they are ill-informed and from a person who hasn't spent much time in the, in the TypeScript world. Now we could basically rename this podcast to TypeScript Hot Takes, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> we love it though. TypeScript's great. The DX experience is just when it just knows so what you it. need to type next yeah. as you type, it's just perfect. Yeah, it, it, it is amazing. Like, I think one of my favorite things are that you can define a route in the routes.js file, and then you can, you can look up that very route with the parameters that you want when you're linking to other pages in your, in your app. It gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside. And anyone who's used Prisma knows that the, the DX is just superb when it's done right. Thank you for your time, Peter. Um, we understand that Redwood is a passion project for you. Next time, we'll hopefully speak about what you're working on next. Totally. I didn't take the time to plug my own thing. Uh, maybe I should do that now. Actually, you know what? I won't do that now. No, maybe I should. I mean, at least say what it is. Okay. I'm working on a, on a product for developers that allows you to take a copy of your production database to transform it into something that resembles your production data and to restore that locally on your computer in a few minutes. A tool for developers to copy your production database onto your computer so you can use it for development without bleeding privacy information. Just to know how big of a deal this is, when I hired our first employee at Redwood Developer. Our first task together was building a seed file that could seed all the data we needed to make graphs and analytics in that. And you think it's really easy, but actually it's a really complex task when you're trying to seed like 10 tables with all the relative data and then you just look over and see your production database that already has all that data. And you think, couldn't we just use that? 
that's what Snaplet is. We'll be speaking about it again soon, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's called Snaplet. And if you'd like to check it out, please hit me up. My Twitter handle is AppFactory. I'll send you an invite. It's ready for people to use and uh, soon ready for people to pay for, pay me for. It's getting late and my language ability is degrading as the minutes count down. I'm sorry. It's fine. That's it. Awesome. That yeah, was, was that it? Was super great. I always feel so, so stupid when I'm trying to. I know it can it can be hard to like take yourself out of your own. So like, don't worry. That was that was great. Like, I could not have been happier with that. So that that's gonna be a a really good conversation.